0: Well, let me invite you uh, to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter six, uh, Galatians chapter six, We're, we spent last Sunday in Galatians six. And today we'll uh, also spend some time in uh, Galatians six, verses one through ten. And the title of the message this morning is sober instructions for a good harvest. Sober Instructions for a Good Harvest, Part Two, last week was Part One. Several years ago, I uh, watched a video that I'm sure some of you have seen in which a a pride of lions attacked a herd of water buffalo. uh, In the chase that followed, and I captured some screenshots of this, which is kind of grainy because it's not professional footage, but I did my best to provide this for you, uh, but in the chase that followed, the lions singled out a, a good-sized calf and immediately created a wedge uh, between the herd and the calf, and pretty quickly, one of the lions caught up to the calf and tackled it right at the edge of, of a lake. The momentum carried the lion and the calf into the water. Other lions quickly descended on the small buffalo, making its fate all but certain. To make matters worse for this calf, as the lions were pulling it out of the water, a crocodile suddenly appeared from the water and latched its powerful jaws onto the calf. And for about 20 awful seconds... A tug of war took place between the lions and the crocodile until the lions finally prevailed, dragging the calf to land. And having literally landed their prey, the lions settled themselves in for what they thought would be a delicious feast. What happened next was breathtaking. Uh, The whole herd of water buffalo returned to the scene. Intent on rescuing the calf from the lions. They surrounded the lions very timidly at first, but as the herd size grew and gathered around the lions, the boldness of these water buffalo grew. One of the lions immediately took measure of the situation and fled, while the others stayed unwilling to give up the calf that they had captured Then one large buffalo lunged at a lion and forced it to flee, and then another buffalo charged at another lion, goring the lion and throwing it up into the air. And upon landing, that lion took measure of the situation and fled, with some of the buffalo chasing after him to make sure that he did not return. Amazingly, at this point, the calf, still alive, "...stood to its feet, still in the clutches of three of the remaining lions. But the herd of buffalo grew louder and grew bolder, harassing the lions, getting closer and closer, until those three lions let go of their prey and fled. And immediately the calf moved toward the herd and disappeared inside the safety... Of the herd as they close ranks around it and begin to walk away. It's an eight minute video that I just described for you that has over 80 million views. You know, it seems that the buffalo in this situation instinctively knew something about the power of community to rescue. One of their own. That calf, we all know, would not have stood a chance were it not for the herd of buffalo returning to rescue it. And not a one of the buffalo would have had the courage to charge at those lions, those five lions, were it not for the herd that was backing it up. Last week, we studied Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, and we saw how Paul encourages us to behave in a similar fashion on behalf of a brother or a sister who is caught in a trespass. We know from 1 Peter chapter 5 that Satan walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, and sometimes he overtakes a Christian, and that Christian cannot break free From Satan's clutches on his own and this is where the community comes in. Together we are stronger than we are when we are isolated from one another and we need to use that strength to rescue a brother or a sister from Satan's clutches. And when we find ourselves in Satan's clutches, we need to be willing to reach out to the community for help. Paul's counsel to us in Galatians chapter 6 verses 1 through 10 is a message that the church can really use in these days that we find ourselves living in right now. We're faced with casualties of war all around us, whether it be Joshua Harris abandoning his faith that we spoke about last week or Marty Sampson of Hillsong publicly Abandoning his faith several weeks ago, or Pastor Jared Wilson's tragic suicide this past week. Or even people in our own fellowship here at Cornerstone who are mired in discouraging defeat and ready to give up. Or people from our fellowship who have abandoned Christ completely and have totally given way to the pull Or the call of their sinful flesh. How do we stay motivated in the midst of defeats and discouragements and casualties of war that we see all around us? Galatians 6, 1 through 10 can speak to us here. This passage contains warnings and encouragements which should leave us both sobered and deeply encouraged to live in a way that will produce the greatest harvest in the end. And at the end of the day, that's what we all want, right? In this passage, Paul gives us what amounts to seven instructions that we will want to follow if we wish to enjoy a good, bountiful harvest from God. And we looked at the first three last Sunday, and we'll look at the remaining four today seven instructions that we will want to follow if we wish to enjoy a good harvest from God in this life and in the next. And the first one of these seven that we looked at last week, we can word this way, when failure occurs, strive for restoration back to the right path. In Galatians six one, Paul gives this counsel. He says, brethren, even if anyone, singular, is caught in any trespass. You, plural, who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Paul's language here teaches that there are times, even in the church, when a brother or sister becomes overtaken with a sin and they find themselves so trapped by The deceptiveness of the sin that they need other Christians to team up and move toward them and help rescue them. And when this happens, those who are walking in the spirit should move toward such a person and seek to restore them to a path of obedience to Christ and wholeness. We who do this should engage in this rescue operation gently and humbly, knowing that today it is us helping this brother or sister who has been captured, but tomorrow it may be that very brother or sister who is rescuing us. In connection with this instruction, Paul gives us a second instruction that we should follow if we want to experience a good harvest. Number two, bear one another's burdens in fulfillment of the law of Christ. In verse 2 and 3, Paul gives us this counsel, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. The one another, that expression that we have in verse 2, means that the command to bear one another's burdens is, is actually two commands. It's the command for you to bear the burdens of others, and it's the command for you to allow others to help you bear your burdens. You're being instructed here not to bear your burdens alone. So don't try to be a hero. If you're trying to be a lone ranger and you think that you don't need help from anyone else in bearing some burden that you are right now under, then according to Paul, you're actually being arrogant and self-deceived. At the same time, if you look down on others as weak because they have burdens that they can't bear on their own, then you're also being arrogant and self-deceived in how you're viewing your brothers and sisters who have those burdens. Don't let yourself be deceived in this way. Be humble. Enter into community and help bear the burdens of others and let others help you with your burdens as well. There's a third instruction that Paul gives that we should follow if we wish to experience a good harvest from God. Number three, examine your own work and carry your own load. Listen to Paul's counsel in verse four. He says, but each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. In other words, examine what God has called you to do and do your job. And if you do a great job at it, don't boast about yourself in a way that distinguishes you from other people And at the other extreme, if you're not doing a good job at what God has called you to do, don't console yourself with the thought that you're at least doing better than other people. Just do your job as God calls you to do your job in the church and know that God will not be grading you on a curve. Paul then gives this rationale. He says, for each one must bear his own load. In other words, each person in the church must do what God has called him to do, and he will be judged for how he carried the load that God gave him to carry. In the Christian life, no one can obey for you. No one else in the church can do exactly what it is that God has gifted you to do. If you don't do your part and carry the load that God has given to you, then the church will suffer a loss as a result. Having said that, um, part of the beauty of that statement of Paul in verse 5 is that it, it actually serves as a protection for people who embrace their ministry of bearing the burdens of others. It sometimes happens that once some people see that you are embracing your calling to bear the burdens of others, they will happily hand you all of their burdens, even burdens that they should be carrying on their own. For example, there are people who are capable of gainful employment, yet they don't get a job. And they are more than happy to put on you the burden of providing for them. And they'll call you unspiritual if you don't. I've actually seen that happen. Or a sister is not pouring out her heart to God and Prayer and being diligent in being in the word of God every day to hear the voice of God through his word. Yet that sister is happy to unburden her heart on everyone else and to seek advice from them without ever going to God. In such situations, a part of your task is as a burden bearer is to clearly minister to that person and clearly identify for that person what their God-given load is that God wants them to carry and to call them to carry that load. You do no favors for yourself or for that person by letting them make you carry the load that God has called them to carry. And I know that this is often a wisdom issue that looks different from person to person. So we need to be praying and have the discernment of the scriptures to know where those lines should be drawn in each place so that we'll fulfill our calling to, yes, bear the burdens of others, while at the same time being careful not to be bearing burdens of others that God has actually called them to carry. Well, moving on, there's a fourth instruction that we should follow if we wish to enjoy a good harvest from God. Number four, let's word it this way. Share in all good things with those who teach you the word. Share in all good things with those who teach you the word. In verse six, Paul says. In the New American Standard, the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him, there are two persons that are identified in this verse: the one who has taught the word and the one who teaches him the word. so the pupil and the teacher are the two people spoken of in this verse, literally the Greek word translated taught and teaches here is the word we get our English word catechize or catechism from. This word means to teach by mouth. And the content that is being taught is the word, which is speaking of the scriptures with the true gospel serving as its centerpiece. Paul is not talking about any teacher who is teaching any word He's talking about the teacher who is teaching the word, the scriptures, and the true gospel that is presented in the scriptures. Language like what Paul is using here in this verse teaches us that the church is to be a teaching institution composed of people who know the word of God and who bear the burden of teaching the word of God and people who allow themselves to be taught the Word of God. And now here in verse 6, Paul tells us what the relationship ought to be between the teacher and the student. Specifically, Paul says that the one who is taught the Word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. The word share, or that is translated share, is the Greek word koinoneo, And many commentators understand Paul to be instructing those who are being taught the word to share their material wealth with the ones who are teaching them the word. In other words, pay them for their teaching. This kind of ethic is towards at least certain teaching elders is taught elsewhere in the New Testament, like 1 Timothy Chapter 5, making this a totally allowable interpretation. But notice the literal reading of this passage, which is reflected by the New King James Version that you see on the screen. Literally, we could translate the passage this way Let him who has taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Just as good of a translation would be, let him who is taught the word partake or fellowship in all good things with him who's doing the teaching. Reading the text in this way, it doesn't sound like the student is being told to share his wealth with his teacher. Instead, The student is being invited to partake with his teacher in the good things that the teacher is teaching him. In other words, it's the teacher who has the good things. And it's the student who is being called to enter into the experience of the good things that the teacher is teaching. As the commentator, Linsky says in this verse, the riches are with the teacher of the word. The poverty is with the pupil. And the pupil is to institute fellowship with the teacher so that he, the pupil, may be enriched. Is that clear? John MacArthur takes the same interpretation of this. Perhaps both ideas that I've identified are involved here. But at the very least, Paul's words here are a call for each Christian to value the role of teachers of the word in their life and to allow themselves to be taught the word of God so that they can enter into fellowship with the teachers and the good things of the gospel that are being taught. A Christian who wants to reap a good harvest in due time in this life and in the next will first and foremost posture himself as a learner at the feet of those who teach the word of God. He'll sit at the feet of the authors of scripture by reading and studying his Bible, and he will place himself underneath the teaching of people in the local church who teach the word of God. I urge you all to make this a year in which you position yourself to be taught the Word of God. On Sunday mornings from this pulpit and in the various equipping school classes that take place at 930 beginning today on Sunday mornings. As Carlos mentioned, we started our equipping school today, but it's not too late at all for you to pick a class offering from the trifold brochure that you have in your bulletin and join us next Sunday at 9.30. You don't even have to sign up. Just show up next Sunday at 9.30 in the morning and receive the benefit of 45 minutes of instruction in the Word of God and become a participant together with the teachers and with others in the good things that are being taught. Beyond that, we have various other weekly enrichment ministries in which the teaching of the word has a central place. In our man forum on Tuesday mornings, we process the preached word and other teaching from the perspective of men. In our men's Bible study, as well as our women's Bible studies, we provide opportunity for you to dig into God's word together with other brothers and sisters. Teaching also plays a central role in our college and career meetings and our AWANA meetings and youth meetings, and we hope that you'll be taking advantage of these opportunities as well. Beyond that, children, you should be listening to the instruction of your parents as they teach you in the ways of God in the home. The thing about Christianity is it is a revelation-based religion. We get that, right? Uh, With a deposit of truth at its core. God doesn't save us and then say, just follow your heart. Just make it up as you go, which is what some people are doing. There's a body of truth, a deposit of truth at the core of Christianity, and each one of us needs to position ourselves in such a way that we're being taught this deposit of truth so that we can be a fellow participant with others in the good things of the gospel as we experience them together. This is simply part of how we as Christians should organize our lives as recipients of the teaching of the Word of God. Doing this is one of the greatest ways that we can sow to the Spirit in our lives that leads to a truly great harvest and I appreciate how so many of you model this ethic in your life your love for the word and the teaching of the word is palpable and a great encouragement to the leadership here at Cornerstone we do not take that for granted but praise the Lord for your love for the teaching of the word of God there's a fifth Instruction that we should follow if we wish to experience a good harvest from God. Let's word it this way. Do not be deceived about the law of sowing and reaping in God's economy. Do not be deceived about the law of sowing and reaping in God's economy. In verse 7, Paul says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Paul is very burdened that we not be deceived about this truth that comes to us with a warning. And the warning is God is not mocked. The Greek word translated mocked comes from the Greek word for nose. This right here, the nose. It means to turn up the nose at someone or to sneer at them. People may mock God and turn up their noses at him, but they will never succeed in that mockery long-term. People may scoff at the gospel of salvation for sinners through a crucified Savior on a cross. They may turn up their noses at God's word and ignore it, but everyone who mocks God And any of these ways will eventually be brought low by God. No one in eternity will say, I mocked God without repentance and I got by with it. No one will say that. Why is this so? At the end of verse 7, Paul says, for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. This is a law in God's universe And this law can cut in either of two directions, which Paul identifies as he continues. In verse 8, Paul states this promise, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. To sow to your own flesh is to do the bidding of your flesh. And if you're wondering what the flesh is, it's that rebel part of you that's in all of us, that is always at war against God and always wants to do the opposite of everything God tells us to do. It always wants to do the opposite of what the Spirit wants us to do, whether it be in our thoughts or in our actions. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 5 that The deeds of the flesh are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. And you sow to your flesh every time you give way to any of such things in your thoughts or in your actions, or when you enjoy the beholding of such things in your entertainments. And if you sow to the flesh in this way, Paul promises that you will from the flesh reap corruption, which speaks of death and decay. And you will not be able to avoid that harvest. It's the harvest of a guilty conscience or the harvest of a seared conscience. It's the harvest of earthly consequences that your sinful actions have set in motion and from which you cannot escape. It's the harvest of broken relationships that your sin has caused and the harvest of deep regret. It's the harvest of enslavement to sins and addictions ...from which you cannot seem to find escape. For those who do not repent of their sins, it will be a harvest of eternity in the lake of fire, reaping the judgment of God for what they sowed to the flesh in this life. If you sow to the flesh, Paul says you will reap corruption, and the worst corruption will be you. You. You yourself will become your own worst nightmare. And you should read a passage like this and consider yourself warned. You know, sometimes if you're thinking about a harvest, it's not like you have to wait around for, I wonder what a harvest will feel like. Sometimes a yielding to a particular sin is in itself a harvest of many prior moments of entertaining the lust that now is culminating in the sin. For example, a person committing adultery is already experiencing a harvest of a hundred thousand earlier occasions in which they had sown to the flesh. A compromise here, a sinful look there, a sinful thought entertained in secret, A careless word spoken, fantasies fed, a dark secret kept, sins left unconfessed. All of such sowings to the flesh end up shaping that person's soul in such a way that they're now willing to take the plunge into adultery. And then the adultery itself will lead to an even greater harvest of corruption. An angry explosion at someone else that you're mad at is often in and of itself a harvest of many earlier moments of entertaining bitter thoughts and rehearsing wrongs done. Wives, if all day long you're thinking about all the ways that your husband has failed and every wrong he has done, you're reviewing those Your husband walks in the door and does one thing wrong and you explode. That's a harvest already. From having sown to the flesh throughout the day or many days prior. Many of the seeds we sow to the flesh are sown up here in our thoughts. And then expressed in our words and our actions. So be very careful about what you allow yourself to think, lest you find yourself on the receiving end or surprised by some harvest of evil and corruption that is issuing forth from you. In the second half of verse 8, Paul gives us the positive side of the equation. He says, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the spirit reap what eternal life in other words if you follow the leading of the spirit contrary to the dictates of your flesh then from that very spirit you're going to reap a harvest of eternal life if you walk according to the spirit you're going to find the fruit of the spirit manifesting itself in your life and the fruit of the Spirit is, and, and look at this fruit and ask yourself, do I not want these things being manifested in my life? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Aren't these beautiful Sowing to the Spirit will produce a harvest of this fruit in your life. Sowing to the Spirit includes preaching the gospel to yourself, walking in the good of the gospel, relying upon Christ to be your Savior every day. And Paul here is saying that if you allow the Spirit to have his way with you, if you saturate your life with the Spirit-inspired scriptures, And the gospel contained in it, then you will reap eternal life and all the good that goes along with that eternal life. You will experience the richness of knowing God. You will experience life and vitality in relationship with God. You will have a conscience that is unstained. Relationships that your sin has not ruined. You will find yourself with growing energy and vision for ministry to other people, and you will have the blessing of seeing lives that you've touched and impacted for God's kingdom, and you will know the joys of eternal life in heaven with God forever. So the question is what will it be for you and for me? Will you sow to the Spirit or will you sow to the flesh? Whatever you choose, you just need to expect the outcome that Paul is predicting here. You can't plant a carrot seed and expect that carrot seed to produce a watermelon. Likewise, you can't sow to the flesh and expect to produce holiness from all of those sowings to the flesh. You must sow to the Spirit because holiness, as we saw last Sunday, is a harvest And Paul is telling you that the way to reap that harvest of holiness is to sow to the Spirit. And let me encourage you that it is never too late to start sowing to the Spirit. If you've spent years of your life living for yourself and sowing to the flesh, you can begin sowing to the Spirit today by repenting of your Sins and embracing the atonement that Jesus offers you at the cross. If you've never believed in Jesus, I, I call upon you to believe in Him today. Calling upon the name of Jesus and a spirit of repentance and believing in Him is the single most powerful act of sowing to the Spirit that you will ever engage in. And that act alone can produce an eternally good harvest, regardless of your life prior to that moment. And think about what Christ has done to make this possible for all of us. The Bible teaches that we're all sinners who have sown to the flesh, and we deserve an eternal harvest of death and judgment from God. Yet Christ allowed himself to be crucified on a cross in order that on that cross he might reap the judgment of God for what we sowed so that we can reap what he sowed through his righteous life. The law that Paul states in Galatians 6-7 still stands is very true. For every sowing there is a reaping. What a person sows, he will also reap. But we can be forever grateful that Jesus Christ inserted himself into that equation. Allowing himself to reap what we sowed on the cross. So that we can then reap what he sowed through his righteous life. This is why a broken sinner can repent of their sins and believe in Jesus and experience an eternal harvest of good in heaven. This is why a sinful tax collector in the Gospels can beat his breast and say, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, and go home justified before he did any righteous deed. That's why a thief on a cross who was mocking Jesus Moments earlier can repent and say, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus can say, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus could say that to the thief because he was in that very moment on a cross reaping in his own person. The harvest that the thief had sowed. So that the thief could now reap in paradise. What Jesus had sowed. Even as believers, when you when you give into the flesh and you fail to walk according to the spirit, you sow to the spirit every time you repent of your sins and soak in God's grace and bathe in Christ atoning blood and get back in the word and pray and continue walking in community with others. Guys, don't ever stop doing that no matter how many times you stumble and fall because holiness is a harvest. Solomon says the righteous man falls seven times and what does he do? He rises up again. Rise up from your sins and your failures and get back in the word. Repent of your sins and keep sowing. Keep sowing knowing that one day There's a harvest coming. I've touched on some of these things already, but if you're wanting practical suggestions on how you can sow to the spirit, here's some suggestions for you. Pray. Read and memorize God's word. Gather with your brothers and sisters in Christ for the purpose of genuine ministry and fellowship. And care group is a great place to begin doing that. Walk in community with others. Examine yourself and repent of your sins when necessary. Listen to and sing gospel-centered songs like what we were singing earlier in our service. During our worship time, we were sowing to the Spirit. Read godly books that instruct you and inspire you in the ways of God. Preach the gospel to yourself each day. Share the gospel with the lost. Serve others and do good to them. The list is endless. God has been good to give us countless ways that we can sow to the Spirit and thus help bring about a great harvest from the Lord. In fact, based on the truth of what Paul has just stated, our response should be, Clear. And this brings us to the sixth instruction that we should follow if we wish to enjoy a good harvest from God. Number six, do not lose heart in doing good, knowing that you will reap a good harvest. Do not lose heart in doing good, knowing that you will reap a good harvest. Listen to Paul's counsel in verse 9. He says, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Guys, there's a reason Paul tells us not to lose heart in doing good. And it's because he knows we need to be told that. He knows it's easy for us to lose heart in doing good. Sometimes we lose heart in doing good because we see no immediate fruit coming from our efforts. We pour our lives in ministry to someone only to see that person go astray. We reach out to a wayward soul and pray daily for them, only to see them becoming more entrenched in their sin. Sometimes we spend time in the word and we pray. We memorize scripture thinking that's going to help us to have victory over some besetting sin in our life, only to see ourselves stumbling into that very sin later that very day. In such moments, it's easy to lose heart. Which is why Paul includes himself in in this command. When we're defeated, when we're discouraged, Paul is telling us that we should join him in continuing to do the right thing. If we failed, we should repent of our sins and get back into the word of God and keep being taught by others. We should get on our knees and keep praying and keep repenting and keep serving And not give up knowing that we will reap in due time. Sometimes we grow weary of doing the good thing. Because we start finding ourselves preferring to do the bad thing instead. We stop doing the forgiving thing and start doing the vindictive thing. We stop doing the patient thing. And start resorting to anger. We stop doing the gracious thing and start spewing bitterness. We stop saying no to sin and start saying yes to sin. It's easy for all of us to grow weary in doing good, but Paul says don't grow weary in doing the good things. Why? Look at the end of verse 10. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. The due time that Paul is speaking about includes particular moments of time on earth. If you hold on and keep doing the right thing, there will be moments of reaping that will come to you even in this life. There are people in this church who have battled with particular sins who never gave up by the grace of God. They resolved to walk in obedience, memorizing scripture, asking for prayer from others. Yet they stumbled and they failed time after time. Yet they kept getting back in the word. They kept repenting, crying out to God in prayer, confessing their sins, staying focused on the gospel, bathing in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and allowing others to help them. And then one day they found themselves done with that particular sin. We have people in this church body sitting in this room this morning who have now been walking in freedom from particular sins for decades now that at one point they thought they would never be free of. Why is this so? Because holiness is a harvest that comes to those who keep sowing in the Spirit. There are married couples in this church who struggled for Years with little progress in their marriage, leading them to moments of deep despair. In many weak moments, they were ready to throw in the towel, but they stayed together and they kept fighting so imperfectly, but fighting for their marriage. And today, years later, they are in a sweet season in their marriage where they have never loved each other more. And they're so glad they stayed together and they kept fighting for their marriage. There are people in this church who have prayed for years, a prayer that for a long time they began to wonder, is it ever going to be answered? And eventually their prayer was answered and they reaped what they had sowed in the form of an answer to prayer. Perhaps even more heroically, there are some in our church who have never seen a particular prayer be answered that they've been praying for for a long time, yet they keep sowing to the Spirit, trusting in the goodness of God and knowing that whatever harvest comes to them will be overwhelmingly satisfying when it comes. If you do not grow weary in doing good, there will be many moments on earth when you experience the blessing Of a good reaping, Paul says, in due time. But guys, don't lose me here. The ultimate due time that Paul is speaking of is in heaven. When Christ says to us, well done, good and faithful servant, enter the joy of your master. Heaven is a place of eternal harvest, a place of eternal blessing and rest. Eye has not seen nor has ear Heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for those who loved him and who sowed seeds to the Spirit throughout their life. One day this final harvest is going to come, and when it comes, we're all going to look back. I know, and we're going to wish we had sowed to the Spirit more lavishly. This realization ought to drive us to be lavish sowers now while we have the opportunity. And this leads us to to the final thing that we should do if we wish to enjoy a good harvest from God. Number seven, do good to all while you have the opportunity, especially to your church family. Listen to Paul's concluding counsel, verse 10. So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. Notice that Paul says, while we have opportunity, which implies that this opportunity that we have for doing good to others is one day going to draw to a close. One day you will breathe your last. It could be today, it could be tomorrow, it could be 30 years from now, but one day. Our opportunity for doing good on earth to others is going to be gone. And Paul is saying, do good to others while you have the precious opportunity right now. And you know what? Even if you yourself have another 50 years to live on earth to do a lot of good, you never know how much time the people in your life have for you to do good to them. It could be that today is your last day to show love to someone before they leave this earth. Do good to them while you have the opportunity, while they and you are still here. Does that make sense? Just this past week, I received a text from a wife who is grieving the passing of her husband of 33 years, whom she misses deeply and she ended her text to me by saying these words quote, "always love and appreciate your wife because you never know how much time you have together" that's good counsel and that's Paul's counsel here in Galatians 6 do good to all while you have the opportunity Because one day that opportunity will be gone and it may be gone sooner than you imagine. This week, I just a few days ago watched a video by Russell Moore in which he was expressing his personal sadness over Pastor Jared Wilson's death by suicide. Russell Moore shared how just last week He, Russell Moore, had received an email from Pastor Jared Wilson in which Jared said to him that he would love for the two of them to talk together about suicide prevention. Russell Moore replied to that email and said, that's a great idea and we should do that soon. Having no idea that Jared Wilson was only a few days from his own death by suicide. Russell Moore was saying in the video that had he known then what he knows now, he would have dropped everything he was doing and reached out and talked to Jared Wilson right away. The days of opportunity for him to talk to Pastor Jared Wilson were fewer than he realized. Let us do good to all, Paul says while we have opportunity. To whom do we do good? Paul says to all people, verse 10. This means to the saved and to the unsaved, to our friends and to our adversaries, to those who love us, to those who hate us. Let us do good to all. But while we are to do good to all, Paul ends verse 10 by saying, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith? That's your Christian family in the local church. Our brothers and sisters in Christ in the local church should be the first and the primary objects of our dedicated, loving service as we care for one another and bear one another's burdens. Yes, we love and we care for and show Christ's love to the lost. But we should especially love and care for our Christian family members who are of the household of faith. I heard John MacArthur once say something to the effect that if we as Christians treat the lost better than we treat our brothers in Christ, why would any lost person ever want to become a Christian? It's a great question. Why not just remain a non-Christian since being a non-Christian seems to entitle them to better treatment from Christians than than Christians seem to show to each other? We need to love one another, love all men, do good to all men, especially to one another. The early Christians in the book of Acts, they showed the grace of Christ toward all, especially to those who were of the household of faith. We see this In Acts 2 and following, they met each other's needs such that there was not a needy person among them, with the result being that great grace from God was upon all of them, lending power to the apostles' preaching of the gospel to the surrounding community. People were hearing the gospel and then seeing it on display in the way that these Christians loved one another. And in the same way, if we want to impact this community for Christ, there are many things that we should do, like engaging the lost and preaching the gospel to them and calling them to faith in Jesus. But one of the principal things that we should also do is to love each other and to do good to each other. It's one of the things that the world most needs to see in us. I've shared this with you guys before, but In his book, Evangelism as a Lifestyle, Jim Peterson tells the story about a Brazilian young man whose name was Mario, who was a Marxist intellectual and a political activist in Brazil. And Jim Peterson started a relationship with this young man and had four years of regular Bible studies with this young man until one day Mario believed in Christ and called on the name of the Lord for salvation. Several years later, Mario was talking to Jim Peterson and said, Hey, Jim, do you know what it was that caused me to accept Christ? Jim Peterson said, No, I don't. What was it? And Jim figured that Mario was... Going to tell him it was your in depth Bible teaching that persuaded me to accept Christ. But Mario didn't mention that, though I'm sure that was huge in his life. Instead, here's what he said to Jim Peterson He said, Remember that first time I stopped by your house? We were on our way someplace together, and I had a bowl of soup with you and your family. As I sat there observing you, your wife, your children, and how you related to each other, I asked myself, when will I have a relationship like this with my fiancé? When I realized the answer was never, I concluded I had to become a Christian for the sake of of my own survival. What this young intellectual saw was a relationship between Christian family members. He saw how they related to each other and he was undone by what he saw. Imagine that. Imagine us in the church doing good to one another in such a way that when a non-believer sees us, being good to each other, they suddenly see their spiritual poverty and decide that they simply must become a Christian for the sake of their own survival. That in itself is a part of the good harvest that comes from following Paul's counsel in Galatians chapter six. You know, I started off this message, and I'll close with this, telling you about A video from the animal kingdom that 80 million people thought was worth their viewing. How about we give the world something to view in us? A community doing good to one another, bearing one another's burdens, loving one another, coming together and rescuing one another when needed with a love that overflows in goodness, not just to each other, but also toward the lost. as we invite them in and share the love of Christ with them. I know that as we do such things in this ministry year and beyond, it will lead to a good and a wholesome harvest, bringing salvation transformation to many, but ultimately it will glorify Jesus Christ, whose name we all hold so dear. Amen. Let's pray together and ask God to help us to do that. Lord, I know that in this room there are some who have been sowing to the flesh. And I just ask that you would so touch their heart that they they would repent of their wicked ways and begin sowing to the Spirit today. For those who have never experienced salvation, they've never come to the foot of the cross where. Where you, Lord Jesus, died and shed your blood, and I just pray that you would draw. Them to the cross to see the beauty of Christ and what you did there and know that there is atonement that is provided for them. If they would admit their bankruptcy and the greatness of their need and look to Jesus and say, He is the Savior for me. I know there are some in our church family, Lord, who carry deep burdens, burdens of struggles with sin and other burdens, Lord, that they've dared not share with anyone else. I pray that you would give them a holy courage to share what they're going through with others so that they can obtain help in bearing their burdens. I pray that you would help all of us to contribute to a culture here at Cornerstone where if someone is carrying a burden, no matter how dark or how heavy it is, that they would feel the freedom to share that And know that it will be approached with hope and with grace, with seriousness and with love from brothers and sisters who will swiftly come to their aid and help get underneath that burden. Help us to operate as one, as one body, rather than as isolated entities. Deliver us from selfishness, from pride and make us a humble, earnest, loving people who do good to each other and from the overflow of that move out into the world in strength and do good to the lost and speak to them of Christ and invite them in. And the dysfunctional world in which we live, Lord, where broken relationships are the norm may May the world see here at Cornerstone and in other local churches in this community and around the world, Lord, may they see that there is a love that is here that is from another world. And there is no explanation for it other than that it is from God and God is among them. And we're not going to do this perfectly. But make us a humble, repenting people who, when we fail and sin, that we repent boldly and with courage. And may the world see that courage and say, where do you get that kind of courage from to speak about your sins the way you do? And then we have opportunity to speak to them of Jesus, who is the source of our courage. You're a good God, Lord. You have provided salvation for us through Jesus. And through him have provided for us an example for us to follow that gives shape to how we do community, Lord, in a way that is wholesome and good and leads to a great harvest that glorifies you. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to give of our offerings to you. We ask that you receive these funds and do much with all that is given for the glory of this Lord Jesus Christ. And whose name we pray and all God's people said.